Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs 26, verse 10. The great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. Now, the Hebrew for this proverb is one of the most difficult proverbs to decipher. It's cryptic because the Hebrew words can mean a variety of things, but it is usually understood in one of two ways, as we just read, the New King James Version or the King James Version, and it amounts to God is sovereign and he administers justice. So the great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. And this is true and it's biblical wisdom, but the problem with this is that the, the translation is poor. There's a euphemism which supplies the word God. So the word there is great. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the use of the, that term that way is highly irregular and, and rather, actually, it's a poor translation. The most modern translations, and probably the best way to take this, is, is this. As an archer who wounds all, so is he who hires a fool or a bystander or transgressor. This is probably the, the better translation. The idea is that giving responsibility to a fool or a novice is dangerous, and it is harmful to everybody involved. Here we learn the wisdom of testing and trying people before trusting them. In business, this is the wisdom of apprenticeship or working your way up from the bottom of a company. This is the wisdom of tracking down references or following up with former employers. Knowing a person, having reliable information, and a track record is insurance against folly, the kind of folly that's outlined in this proverb, hiring a fool or a novice. Because if he's a thief, or a creep, or a liar, or a whiner, or a rabble-rouser, everybody suffers. The employer, the business, the customer, and ultimately the fool. And this wisdom doesn't stop with industry. These truths are every bit as applicable in our personal lives. This is the wisdom of living in community and knowing who your children's friends and acquaintances are, or knowing and trusting their babysitters or whoever you give authority over them. This is why there's wisdom in daughters and sons involving their parents and their families as a sounding board as they pursue a husband or wife. If you entrust your children to an unworthy authority figure, or if you allow them to run around with a gang of hoodlums, you will likely have consequences. If they marry a fool or a transgressor, they will suffer. If he won't work, or if he's an angry man, or if he's a drunkard, everybody suffers. If she is lazy, if she tears down her house, if she is an indiscreet flirt, everybody hurts. And the proverb is pointed at the authority figure at the beginning. 
It's the one who hires, who is like the indiscriminate archer. There is culpability for not using discernment in these things. So where do we get wisdom in these things? We go to God. We need to be lifting this stuff up to God in prayer and asking Him to protect us from rash decisions and to provide us with faithful employees and godly spouses for our children. All good things come from Him, but all wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, which means humility and repentance. This reminds us that we need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please. morning and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be here with us. We pray that you would bless us by opening your word to us, communicate your truth to our hearts and our souls, send your spirit to be here with us that he might interpret the word and apply it to our hearts, fill us with a will and a heart and a desire to do your will, to walk according to your ways. Father, we pray that you would renew us and sanctify us and consecrate us for your service. That you will bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now at the heart of the book of James. In chapter 1, James told us to exercise faith in trials, and he concluded with an exhortation to pure and undefiled religion, which he defined as mercy ministry visiting the widows and orphans in their trouble, and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Central to this is the congruence, or the, 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 the likeness, the equality of words and actions. And this is evidenced in the command that he gives in verse 19, to be slow to speak, and in verse 26, about if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. So he's telling us to be active and to control our speech. Similarly, in chapter 2, James camps out on the hypocrisy of incongruent words and actions, saying that, um, saying that they love Jesus but not obeying his commandments to treat the poor with dignity. We just read that portion. Do not show partiality. He says, if you love Jesus, you must then act that way. Your words cannot be hypocritical in this. Or saying that they have faith and not bearing it out with their words, with their actions. Now we come to chapter 3, and James is going to speak very directly about the tongue. And our text this morning is James chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. My brethren... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. 
Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. As you can see by your outlines in our bulletins, there are two main directions James heads with these verses. First is an exhortation that there not be a multiplicity of teachers. He says, let not many of you become teachers. Because there's a stricter judgment for teachers. And everybody falls short of perfection in many things. So because we are all, we are all falling short, and we are going to be, teachers will be judged more strictly, he said he wants to limit who becomes a teacher. And his second point has to do with justifying the first point, that the tongue is small but powerful. Words are powerful. God spoke the world into being. We are created in God's image, and hence our language shapes life. Proverbs tell us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words impact community and culture. So our tongue, as the instrument of speech and the tool of teachers, it demands incredible wisdom to bridle. But we must, lest we suffer great loss. So let's begin with James' first point, that not, not many should be teachers. Verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Teaching is a good thing. It's, teaching is a good thing. I don't want this to be an exhortation for nobody to consider taking on the calling of ministry, or the calling to, to, to leadership or teaching. It's a warning about doing it too abruptly. Teaching is a good thing. The Old Testament leaders were held in high regard by the Jews. God's calling on men is a high calling to the, to the calling of leadership, of teaching. And he has great blessings and rewards for faithful teachers. First Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us that if a man desires the office of elder or bishop, he desires a good thing. That's a good thing to desire. In 1 Timothy 5, we see that there's, there's honor, respect, and, and, uh, and, well, honor and respect for the office of elder. Let the elder who rules well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine or teaching. So teaching's a good thing, but the judgment for leaders is stricter. And James is very point blank about this. He doesn't he doesn't pull back. The judgment for leaders is stricter from God. A classic example of this is from Ezekiel chapter 3 where Ezekiel's called to be the watchman. And God tells him, he says, look, I'm going to send you out with a message, and you're going to tell the wicked man to repent. And if he hears you, then he will be saved because he becomes righteous. And if he doesn't hear you, then he will perish because he is wicked. But if I tell you to give that message to him and you don't go, 
He will perish because of his wickedness, but you will be held accountable because you did not give him the message that I gave you to give him. Likewise, if God tells Ezekiel to tell the righteous not to sin and not to fall, then if he falls because Ezekiel fails to tell him not to sin, Ezekiel is going to be held accountable for this. It's the classic example of, of the watchman in Ezekiel chapter 3. In the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3, we receive a, a, a large list of requirements for elders and deacons. It's long and it's intense. It's humbling to read through the, the requirements for elders and deacons. He must be judged on his home life. He must be judged on his children, on his finances, on his use of alcohol, on his reputation, on his ability to teach, on his knowledge. He must not be a novice. He's judged on all these things before... A man is judged on all these things before he's qualified for office in the church. And this is important because they are examples to the church. They have to be called into question in their doctrine and in their life to see if what they believe and what they teach is true and if the way that they live is congruent with what they say they believe. Leaders and rulers and teachers have a higher standard for punishment. Their punishment, their rebuke is public because they hold a public office. 1 Timothy 5. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So there's a high standard for accusation. But listen to this. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. They're an example in their life. They're an example in their punishment, in their correction. And finally, Paul commands Timothy to be hesitant or slow to lay hands on anyone in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So God judges teachers with a stricter judgment. But men also judge teachers with a stricter judgment. Issues of scandal and hypocrisy are significant and severe in this regard. It is juicy news when we hear of a pastor who has been caught in an inappropriate relationship or his email pops up in a scandalous website's database. Names, reputations, and ministries are dragged through the mud people, their lives are ruined from this. Men judge leaders harsh. We have, we do not like hypocrisy in leadership. It's natural to us. And this has teeth even without the gross excesses of blatant sin in office. It's not just hypocrisy or scandal that gets Leaders judged more harshly. Teachers are held to a higher standard. Their lives are scrutinized more closely. And the nature of office in the church can minimize privacy and freedom for those who hold that office. It, it seems like other people can get away with doing things that leaders can't. 
Because people are more quick to ask for justifications or clarifications about why are you doing that? Please explain yourself. And that's okay. James tells us that's just the way it is. And it's okay because leaders are examples. Being asked for a justification or a clarification is an opportunity to share the gospel. An opportunity to, to, to grow closer to each other. And it doesn't mean that everybody gets a pass and nobody else has to give justifications or clarifications. It's just a, a, a nod to the fact that the way men work is that all eyes are trained up front. People are looking to their leaders. People are looking to their leaders. And James is blunt about this. He says, let not many of you become teachers. It's, it's, it's a high calling. It's a hard road. He gives his warning and he explains that this is something to ponder for would-be teachers, blog writers, pastors, elders, book writers, instructors at seminaries and, and, and colleges. When you teach, you take on all this judgment. You take on all this high standard. And James gives us this warning and explains that we need to ponder this because of our imperfections. Listen to what he says in verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. He says, this is why. Stricter judgment and we all fall short of perfection. Stricter judgment, and there's something to be judged. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. The problem with teaching is that the tongue is the tool of the trade. You, you, you deal in words. And the issue with that is that controlling the tongue is hard to do. James tells us that if anyone can do that, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. In this, James is in accord with what we learn in the Proverbs about, about words. Proverbs 18, verse 19. In the multitude of words, what is not lacking? Sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. And in Proverbs 17, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. So the Proverbs tell us, keep your mouth shut. And James tells us, be careful about becoming a teacher. When James says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, he doesn't mean that he's categorically perfect, as if he were Jesus Christ. 
When he says perfect man, he's talking about maturity. In life, we must learn the power of the tongue. We must grow in it. We must mature in it. We must, un- we must mature in our understanding of the danger of words. This is something you and I are called to teach our children about. It's something that elders and pastors are, and that teachers are supposed to teach the community about. Words are dangerous. Words are powerful. Shut your mouth, hold your tongue, listen before you speak. Think before you speak. Bridling the tongue doesn't mean just shutting your trap. It means controlling your tongue so that the words that you use are for life. But we all stumble in this. Words come out in a moment. Jesus is very clear that our speech is a window to our hearts. They reveal our hearts. Our words reveal our hearts. And Jesus is also clear that God will judge every idle word that we speak. How many of you can remember a time that the words came out and you wish you could reel them back in? As soon as you said it, you knew. You just knew. Your heart hit the floor as soon as those words came out of your mouth. As soon as you realized what you had said or who had heard you or how you hurt someone who had placed their trust in you by violating that trust with your words. It happens to everyone. That's what James tells us. We all fail, and thankfully, we have a gracious God who teaches us that the heart of the gospel is forgiveness for sin. Repentance and forgiveness. We all fail. We all need the grace of Jesus' blood to cover that sin that we commit. Thankfully, our God is that kind of God. Otherwise, we would all be sunk. There would be no hope for anybody. But nevertheless, even though we have hope and forgiveness, the standard for leadership of God's holy church is to have mature, godly men who teach us. Men who are consistently faithful with their words, consistently speaking the truth, are slow to speak, slow to wrath. Men who do not lash out or upbraid or tear down with their words. Men who love God and love their neighbor with their words. Because words, well, hardly more than a breath. What is a word? Your lungs contract. Your mouth makes a shape and a sound comes out. It happens in an instant. It just pops right out of you. It's so fast. And there and gone immediately. 
They're hardly more than a breath of air. And yet, they are extremely substantial. They are small, but they are powerful. Verses 3 through 5. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. So here James, speaking about words, appropriately waxes eloquent. He uses beautiful words. He uses metaphor. He gives us three metaphors, all teaching the same thing, that the tongue is small but powerful. Words are small but powerful. Horses are large animals, much larger than their, their riders, but they are turned by a little piece of metal in their mouth. A bit. Ships are large, driven by fierce winds, turned by a very small runner. And whole forests can be set on fire by a little spark, a little, a little fire. That's what our tongue is like. That's what our words are like. The bit, the rudder, and the spark. Now first I want to give a word about audience. Who is James talking to? If you remember back uh, to my introductory sermon, we're talking about James, the brother of John the Apostle, who was giving this letter and sending it out to the early church after they had been scattered because of the, uh, the stoning of Stephen and the persecution from the Jews. So James is speaking here to his brothers. He says, my brothers. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers. He's talking to teachers. He's talking to leaders of the church. That's who this, this letter is particularly geared towards. And I think this, uh, this plays a significant role in the interpretation of this text. Because the primary audience, he's focused on getting the leaders to speak clearly and well the truth of God. So that the body, the ship, the horse, the community will do what is right, will follow its leader. Are they bringing about patience in adversity, wisdom and insight, or are they whipping everyone up into a frenzy because look how bad we're being treated? We've seen that James has this deep concern using his own teaching in the book to quench the flames of radicalism. He opens with, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. He's pouring water on the fire. And he consistently reminds them to keep their eye on Jesus, on mercy ministry, and on the works of faith, and on treating each other with equity. He says, be like Jesus. Even this here is a command to restraint. Don't become a revolutionary. Don't inflame the fire.
affairs of rebellion, but bridle your tongues, control your passions. Now, because the primary focus is leaders in the church, this doesn't negate the application for everybody else. Because James is primarily focused on the ministers, this is just as applicable for everyone else because the ministers are examples for everybody else. What's good for them is good for you. We are all in process. We are all growing to maturity. We are all working towards perfection the Lord's, by the Lord's will. So that's James' audience. That's his context. That's his initial focus. But now a word about words. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Words are the medium, the vehicle by which we communicate. There, God created us this way. It was through words that God made us. It's through words that God shows us who he is. It's through words that God displays his plan of salvation for us in the scripture. Jesus is called the word, the logos. The incarnation, the, the enfleshing of God's word, of God's salvation. By Jesus, God created the universe, and through him, God communicates to us. In Jesus, we know God's love, his mercy, his kindness, and the hope of salvation. All through words. Words have incredible power. Words are binding. Words create marriages. Words accomplish sacraments. They define terms of contracts. They constitute institutions and governments. That's what we constitution. They establish laws. It's all words. They're binding. And words are damning. By words, people are condemned. Courts hold people to the words that they say or the documents that they sign. Jesus judges us by the words that come out of our mouths. Words are damning. Words are liberating. By words, people are set free. Students are taught. Education comes by words. That's freedom. Nations are led through words. Relationships are restored by words. Children are loved and encouraged through words. Intimacy is established. The words, I love you and I forgive you, are powerful words. The gospel comes through words. Words persuade and words dissuade. The book of Proverbs presents both lady wisdom and the harlot out in the streets with words calling out. The harlot trying to persuade the young man to come in. And the lady wisdom is trying to dissuade them from going in. 
Satan lies to us with his words, and God speaks to us with his words. In all of this, we are now commanded to exercise wisdom with our tongues. We bear God's image, and we ought not to disfigure it with untoward words. Our God is the God of life. Our words should represent that. We must discern how to bridle our tongues and how to exercise them for the glory of God, for his love, and for the love of our neighbors. And I want to leave you with some further words about words from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 15, verse 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. Proverbs 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. Chapter 13, verse 3. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Chapter 15, verse 2. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Proverbs 16, verses 27 and 28. An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisper separates the best of friends. Proverbs 18, verses 7 and 8. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. They go down into the inmost body. And the last one is Proverbs 18, verses 20 and 21. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you established the world that we know on words, and that we have revealed your word to us in the gospel, and that you teach us wisdom in the Proverbs and in the book of James. To recognize the power and the danger of the tongue. Father, we thank you that you call us to faithfulness with our words. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit and apply these truths to our hearts so that the words that come out of our mouth would be life-giving and life-sustaining. We ask that your gospel may be clearly proclaimed in our, in our words and in our songs and in our praises and in our prayers. 
We pray that your truth may be clearly established in us. We pray that you'd help us to walk faithfully in accordance with the truth of the words of your scripture. Father, we now conclude as you taught us. It gives you pause to think, doesn't it? God created us to use our tongues for life. Our words and our lives must be in accord with His Word and the life that flows out of Him. But that starts with knowing Him, with receiving Him, and with hearing Him. And that happens here. Receive Jesus. Believe the Gospel. Taste and see that He is good, that He loves you. And that he has good for you. He died for your sins and communicates the freedom of life in him to you through his word. So eat, drink, rejoice, and sing, for he has borne your condemnation and offers you hope and life. This meal is for believers who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. We eat and we drink. For God's glory, and we acknowledge that we are sinners without hope except in Jesus' redeeming blood and the sovereign mercy of God, and we trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. Christ's body, broken for us, let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.